Okay, brothers and sisters, so welcome to another episode of the BQA, the Bible Question and Answer. Our topic for today is about Mashiach or Messiah in English. And so the question we're going to attempt to answer is, does the term or word Christ really mean Mashiach or Messiah? And so the purpose of this question is to kind of see whether or not there's been pagan influence in the choosing of the name Christ based upon the query of one of our members, members of the Assembly of Yahusha, who sent us the following letter. Allow me to read. Greetings, I pray all is well with you. My question is regarding the use of the word Christ. Many seem to believe that it is interchangeable with the word Messiah, Mashiach. The Blue Letter Bible is an excellent study tool that allows us to see the original Hebrew and Greek words used in the scriptures. It really broadens and deepens our understanding of the scriptures. However, it is not free of error. For example, you will see the Blue Letter Bible uh, give evidence when out of proper context for words like Jesus, the Greek word 2424, and Jehovah, the Hebrew word H3068, and Yeshua, uh, the Hebrew word 3442, which we know are pagan in origin or simply bad transliteration. So he does make a good point. And so the question being asked or raised here comes from a context of someone really looking into scripture. And so when we piece together certain ideas and logically follow where it leads, it takes us to a question where we need to do test what it means when we say the Christ, because when we read scripture in English, it mentions Christ, but it's an English word. And so we need to know, is it a proper translation of the word that does represent what uh, Yahusha is, which is the anointed one. So based on other words, which have been translated Jesus, Jehovah, Yeshua, we can conclude the Blue Letter Bible, although is a good resource, it is not perfect, and there are errors found in it. And so based on that, let's now look at what he is raising as an argument. We look at the word Messiah and anointed, the Hebrew word for H, uh, H4899 in the Old Testament. It appears to be different from the word Christ, which is the Greek word 5548 in the New Testament. From my, res my research, the word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, and Christos comes from the, hin the Hindu god Krishna or Krista in the Sanskrit language. In 1 Samuel 2 verse 10, we see the horn of the anointed, Hebrew 4, 8, 9, 9. Psalms 132, 17. Again, we see the use of the Hebrew word for 899, which means anointed or Messiah. Uh, in Daniel 9.25, the word Messiah was still Hebrew word for 899. Whenever a king was anointed or a priest was considered anointed, Strong's were Hebrew word, uh, Strong's word, Hebrew 4899, was always used. The words Mashiach, Messiah, anointed one, Hebrew 4899, do not appear to be connected to the word Christ, which is the Greek word 5548 in the New Testament. What are your thoughts concerning this? So let's begin uh, by addressing the elephant in the room, which is a mentioning of a term which is pagan, which is the word Krishna, because according to his query, uh, from my research, the word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, 
And Christos comes from the Hindu god Krishna or Krista in the Sanskrit language. And so what we can do is basically rephrase the question, well, if Christos does not come from Mashiach and there's no relationship between Christos and Mashiach, is it true that Christos comes from Krishna? It does kind of sound the same, does it not? Christos, Krishna. And so there is the similarity in phonetics. However, does it mean that Christos comes from Krishna? In other words, does Christos mean Krishna? And this is what we're going to try and attempt to answer. But before we can do that, let us first find out, well, who was Krishna, right? Perhaps some of you are well aware of who Krishna is, especially if you went to college and you took up of comparative religion studies, and you studied the Hindu religion, you read the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata, and so you are perhaps well aware of who Krishna is. But for many people, they have no idea. So who was Krishna? Krishna is one of the most significant and beloved deities in Hinduism. So we're talking about the religion of the Hindus. He is worshipped as a god of love, compassion, and joy, and is also considered an incarnation of Lord Vishnu, one of the three main gods in Hinduism. Krishna is also the central figure in the Bhagavad Gita, one of the most sacred texts of Hinduism. In this text, Krishna teaches the warrior Arjuna about the nature of existence, duty, and the path to liberation. So according to um, Hinduism, there is a deity by the name of Krishna. So Krishna is his name, and they believe him to be an incarnation of the Lord Vishnu. The account concerning Krishna can mainly be found in a sacred Hindu text called the Bhagavad Gita. And so if you want to know about Krishna, you read the Bhagavad Gita. If you want to know about Yahusha, you read the gospel. And so the question is, is there a relationship between Krishna and Christ? Is there a relationship between Krishna and Yahusha? Now, some say, that the gospel story about Yahusha was taken from the Hindu story of Krishna. In other words, there are atheists, there are scholars who accuse quote-unquote Christianity, who accuse us that the story of the gospels portraying Yahusha as the Savior and Messiah was plagiarized from the Hindu story of Krishna. And to make their point, what they will do is list a bunch of characteristics about the story of Krishna, which they say Christianity borrowed from this Hindu uh, figure. And so what are some of these claims about Krishna? Some of them include Krishna was born a virgin. Krishna was born in a manger. Krishna died at the age of 30. Krishna died by crucifixion, Krishna resurrected after three days, and last but not least, Christ is a form of the name Krishna. And so they will take each of these bullet points, these arguments, put them together and say that Christianity plagiarized uh, Hinduism, their Hindu story concerning Krishna. You can find this like on the internet, on YouTube, there are people who were against Yahusha against the gospel and the Bible, and they say it's all based upon myth instead of 
history. However, what we need to do as followers of our King Yahusha is to test for truth. We need to look at each of these arguments and find out what the truth behind it is. Is it true that the gospel story about Yahusha was taken from the story of Krishna? Let's begin with item number one. Krishna was born of a virgin. And so they say because Krishna was born of a virgin. And when you look at all these other arguments, it sounds a lot like Yahusha, does it not? And so one might conclude if they believe all of this to be true, well, maybe the gospel story may have been taken from or based upon the story about Krishna. We know, for example, Yahusha was born a virgin. Now, what is the basis for that? Why do we believe that? It begins in a prophecy in Isaiah 7, verse 14. This, by the way, is a dual fulfillment prophecy because there was an actual person who, uh, who gave birth as a virgin, but it would also be fulfilled in the future as a more complete prophecy. In verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so that's the prophecy. There's going to be a virgin birth. And it's going to produce a son who will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. How was this prophecy in Isaiah fulfilled? Matthew 1, 21, 23. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Yahushua, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. How was the prophecy in Isaiah fulfilled? It was fulfilled when Mary, uh, the mother of Yahusha, gave birth to him as a virgin. This is why Joseph, the, hus the husband-to-be, was going to divorce Mary because he knew that Mary... And Joseph, well, they did not yet consummate their marriage because they did not, were, they were not yet really married. And so they were going to get married. We call that fiance, right? engaged. And so they were engaged to get married. But because of the miraculous birth, Joseph had to be instructed through a dream. And so an angel visited him. And so he was, he found out about the situation. It's a good thing. And so after this miraculous visit by an angel, it was announced that the birth that will come from the womb of Mary was to fulfill a prophecy in Isaiah. The child is going to be called Emmanuel. In other words, it's going to bear the title Emmanuel because it would mean God with us. Because by the shed blood of Yahushua, people will be brought close to our loving Yahuwah Abba. However, the name to be given to the son is Yahushua. So the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 is Yahushua because Mary, the virgin, gave birth to the Savior, Yahushua Hamashiach. How about Krishna? Is it true that according to the Hindu books that Krishna would be born of a virgin? Because this is what's going out there. This is what the people are saying. Well, according to the Vishnu Purana, which is one of the sacred texts where we can read all about um, Krishna. This is what it says in 
5.37. According to Hindu texts, it is evident that Devaki, Krishna's mother, had given birth to seven sons before him. Unfortunately, the malevolent prince Kamsa had them all executed except for Krishna. So this is the story behind the birth of Krishna. He was the eighth son. He was not born of a virgin. The previous sons were killed. The eighth son was not. So Krishna was not born of a virgin. That is not true. It is only a claim that is not based upon what is revealed according to the Hindu text. Let's go to the next one. Krishna was born in a manger. Well, first of all, is it true? Do we teach that Yahushua was born in a manger? What does the Bible reveal? Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The Bible doesn't tell us that Yahushua was born in a manger. What it tells us is after his birth, he was laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So that's the biblical truth about Yahushua's birth. However, what do the Hindu texts reveal about Krishna? Let's go, let's refer again to the Vishnu Purana 5.1. As per Hindu scriptures, Krishna was born in a prison cell where Kamsa had confined his sister Devaki and her husband. Vasudeva, upon learning about the prophecy that the couple's eighth child, Krishna, would bring about his demise. And so according to the Hebrew, I mean, the Hindu sacred texts, there is no mention that Krishna was born in a manger. What it says, it, it, he was born in a prison cell. And so here we can see that uh, the, the claim so far about Krishna is not true according to the Hindu text. So let's go to the next one. Krishna died at the age of 30. And so people say this was borrowed, the Gospels borrow this story about Yahushua, because according to the Gospels, is it, does, it, does it not say that Yahushua died at the age of 30? Well, what does the Bible say? What is the truth about the Holy Scriptures? About What do the Scriptures say about Yahushua's death? Let's read the book of Luke. Chapter 3, verse 23. Now, Yahushua himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. According to scriptures, did Yahushua die at age 30? No, it doesn't say that. What it says is it, he began his ministry at age 30. And so he died shortly after he turned 30 because his ministry was not long. It was about 3.5 years. So his ministry was not long indeed. So he died at about 30, but it doesn't say he died at 30. He started his ministry at about 30 years of age. According to the Hebrew, the, the Hindu texts, their sacred texts, uh, when did or how long did Krishna live for? According to this article from the, the Times of India, Lord Krishna lived for 125 years. Krishna is believed to have lived considerably long life. According to general estimates, he passed away at the age of approximately 100 years. However, a 2004 article published in the Times of India stated that Hindu scholars had computed Krishna's age at death to be 125 years. 
years. So according to the Hindu text, and what makes it difficult to pinpoint the, the death or the age, the, the, uh, the length of time that Krishna lived for is because all of these different books, these Hindu texts, they span many years. And Krishna is not even mentioned in any of the old, old texts. He's only mentioned like 300 or 400 years after the time of Yahusha. And so they had to piece together all these pieces of the puzzle to try and figure out when he, how long he actually lived for. But according to scholars, it was not 30 years. It was about 125 years. And so we, that's also just a claim. It's a claim where it says Krishna died at the age of 30. Another one is Krishna died by crucifixion. That's a big one, right? Because that's one of the main highlights of the life of our King Yahushua. In fact, that is the most pivotal moment of the gospel story, the death of our King Yahushua by crucifixion. And so according to the Holy Bible in John 19, 30, 31, so when Yahushua had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath, Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So according to the gospel narrative, our King Yahushua died on the cross. He was crucified. We know this to be true. However, according to the Hindu sacred text, when or how was Krishna, how did he die? According to the Mahabharata and also the Vishnu Purana, the Hindu texts do not mention at all crucifixion. It does not. Instead, it is believed that Krishna met his end when a hunter named Jara accidentally shot him in the foot with a poison arrow, mistaking him for a deer. So this is according to the sacred text. This is how Krishna dies. Very different from crucifixion. Let's test the next one, the next claim. Krishna resurrected after three days. Why is this significant? According to Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to, to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And so here we have the testimony of the apostle Paul. Remember, before he was called, he was a zealot. He was a Pharisee. He was working with the Sanhedrin. And yet he was a student of the law. And so he was into logic. He was a man of science. He was a man in pursuit of truth because he wanted to know the truth. And so when he found out about Yahushua, that he died and he resurrected, he investigated the truth. And he was a lawyer. You know, when a lawyer seeks for truth, they will look at all the evidence. And it's a good thing he did that because he found a lot of evidence. And when you are presented with a case and you're looking for evidence, you look for witnesses. 
And when you have two or three witnesses, you have a powerful argument for that case, right? Apostle Paul, not only does he have one or two or three witnesses, he has so much, so many witnesses. According to the Holy Bible, Apostle Paul is stating he had 500 independent witnesses. He had the apostles as witnesses and he himself as a witness. So Apostle Paul, who was a lawyer, when he was making the case for Yahushua, he concluded based on the evidence, based on what he knows, that Yahushua died and he resurrected on the third day. And so when it comes to the historicity of the death of Yahushua, many, many historians believe that Yahushua existed, that he was an actual person who lived on the earth, that he died. And after he died, there was this miraculous event that took place, which changed the life of his disciples, making turning them from cowards into martyrs. And the only explanation is he must have lived again. He must have resurrected. And Apostle Paul gives a testimony about the risen Yahusha HaMashiach. He was raised on the third day. Well, how about Krishna? What do the sacred books uh, teach about him? Well, according to Diana Ek, the writer of India, a sacred geography, this is what she says about Krishna, following his death, Krishna's spirit is said to have manifested almost immediately, having relinquished his physical form, his spirit transcended to the realm of the divine. Devotees of uh, Hinduism still visit the Hoshtarga, which translates to where Krishna gave up his body, where it is believed that Krishna departed from this world. And so according to what we read, the idea that Krishna resurrected on the third day is false. In fact, they don't even introduce the idea of a resurrection because when you speak of a resurrection, it refers to the resurrection of the body. In the case of Krishna, he did not resurrect in terms of the resurrection of the body. Instead, when he died, he simply relinquished the physical form. Very different from the resurrection of our king, Yahusha, because he died as a physical body, he resurrected as a physical body, and he resurrected on the third day. However, when it comes to Krishna, he resurrected, or he did not resurrect on the third day, his spirit was manifested almost immediately as he died. So that's the story of Krishna. And when we think of Krishna and compare it to Yahusha, there's a big difference. First of all, Yahusha is not a real person, or Krishna is not a real person. He is mythical, right? Yahusha, on the other hand, is a real historical person who walked and lived on earth. Historians today, those who study human history, those who study the biographies of the presidents of the United States, of world leaders in the past like Alexander the Great, so on and so forth, historians with credibility, every single one today, they believe in the historicity of Yahusha, that he was an actual person who walked on the earth, lived on the earth, even if they don't believe the gospel, they believe there was a real person whose name was Yahusha, who did the things that, is meant, that are mentioned in the Holy Bible. So there's a big difference there. I mean, when you think about this, why would a real historical person borrow from a mythical figure like Krishna. As a matter of fact, 
one can make the argument that it's the other way around, that it is, I mean, if we're going to speak of borrowing ideas, it's more likely that the story concerning Krishna was borrowed from the gospel narratives. Why? Well, you know, when you look at the stories of Krishna, well, most of them were documented after the time of Yahusha, despite claims in the Hindu epics that he lived before Yahusha. Now, when you read about uh, Krishna, it mentions that he lived long, long ago. But then again, he's a mythical figure. He did not really exist. Furthermore, uh, since Krishna is considered a mythical figure, the significance of such claims is minimal. The oldest known manuscript of the Bhagavad Gita, for instance, dates back to AD 900. The sacred texts that we're using concerning Krishna, they were not produced until long after the death of Yahushua. Although scholars believe um, that it was written several years after the birth of Christ. While it is plausible that the original story of Krishna dates back to a few hundred years BC. Wanna pause there for a while? There's some texts that marginally mention Krishna, but they do not mention him as a person in the same way he is mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita. In this case, he was mentioned as a student. That's it. And when scholars look into these so-called sacred texts, many conclude it was an interpolation to the text, an insertion to the original text. So there's no concrete evidence that supports this claim. Contrast, there are hundreds of manuscripts of the New Testament that predate the oldest known manuscripts of the Bhagavad Gita. Therefore, if any borrowing occurred between two religions, it would have been from Christianity to Hinduism, given that Christianity had already spread to India by the fourth century and potentially earlier. So if there's going to be a borrowing of ideas. It would be Hinduism borrowing from the narrative of Christianity, not the other way around. This is why if we were going to say Christ came from Krishna, it's probably unlikely, which is why now we need to text to test this statement. Christ is a form of the name Krishna. Well, what is the meaning of Krishna? Like what was mentioned in the post, it comes from the Sanskrit word Krishna, which means black, dark, dark blue, or the all attractive. And so Krishna, who is a major deity in Hinduism, has a name that has a meaning. It means black, dark, dark blue, or the all attractive. Is there a connection then between Krishna, we're speaking about meaning, we're, we're, we're talking about the definition of Krishna with Christ. There's no connection, right? Christ does not mean Krishna. Krishna does not mean Christ. Do they sound alike? Yes. But just because two names sound alike doesn't mean that they are equivalent. They could be very different. And so Krishna does not mean Christ. Christ does not mean Krishna. Well, what is the origin then of the word Christ? Where did it come from? Let's go back to the person asking the question. Our brother says, we look at the word Messiah and anointed, the Hebrew word 4899. So we're going to compare that word with the Greek word 
Uh, it appears to be different from the word Christ, the Greek word 5548 in the New Testament. And so we're going to compare two different words. In the Hebrew, it is the Hebrew word 4899, which means Mashiach. And the, the Greek word, the Greek word 5548 in the New Testament. But it turns out the Greek word 5548 does not mean Christ. It means something else. The Greek word 5548 actually means um, the word kiro, krio, krio, which means to anoint. So that's the meaning of the Greek word that was referenced. It means krio. It is a verb. It means to anoint, right? That's the Greek word, krio. And the Hebrew word that he referenced, Hebrew word 4899, Mashiach, it means anointed one. So Mashiach, well, that's a masculine noun, right? And so we're comparing Mashiach with Krio. Krio in Greek means to anoint. Mashiach means the anointed one. Of course, there's going to be a difference because one is a verb, the other is a noun. But, so when we compare the two and look at the differences and the similarities, we have on the left, Krio, on the right, Mashiach, right? So Krio means to anoint, Mashiach means anointed one. One is a verb, one is a noun. I think um, what he was probably wanting to look into was a different Greek word the word Christos, not Krio, right? Because in the book of Acts 4.10, for example, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Yahushua Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. So the Bible tells us that Yahushua is the Christ, right? And so it mentions the name of Yahushua Christ of Nazareth. And so I think we're more interested in this Greek word, which is translated Christ instead of Krio. Let's look at Christos. And so let's look at the Blue Letter Bible. It says Christ, the Greek word 5547, Christos. And so the word Christos, what does it mean? It's now an adjective, right? Not a verb. Christos means one who is anointed, the Messiah, the son of God. And if you look at the root word, it says it comes from the root word trio. Trio means to anoint, to cover with oil. This is why we have Christos. So the word Christos comes from trio. It doesn't come from Krishna. Christos comes from trio. Trio means to anoint. Or And so Christos means anointed one in the, uh, in the Greek, right? And so that's the origin of Christos. And so etymologically, we can see that Christos means anointed one because it comes from the Greek word krio, which means to anoint. It's the same way with Mashiach. When we look at the etymology of Mashiach, we have on the right Mashiach. And it comes from the root word H4886, which is masa. What does masa mean? To anoint. Mashiach 
means anointed one. What is the etymology? It comes from the root word masa, which means to anoint. So you go from anoint to the anointed one, Mashiach. And so in that same way, Christos comes from Krio. It doesn't come from Krishna. And so there's no etymological connection between Krishna and Christ. It does not exist. Christ is Greek for anointed one. It comes from Krio. And Krishna is an unrelated personal name. Christ is a title, the anointed one, right? That's why it's an adjective. But Krishna, on the other hand, is a personal name. And this is why you don't connect the name Christ, which is a title, with the personal name of Krishna, and they don't go together. Phonetically, they may sound alike, but that's all you have. There's no connection other than phonetically, it may sound the same. So having said that, right, does it mean, though, that Christ is the best way to describe Yahushua? Because this is how we grew up in the church. We grew up knowing Jesus Christ, but now we're using his Hebrew name, Yahushua, which is his real name and only name, because that's the name given to him by the Father. But sometimes the term Christ still lingers in our mind. And so we address Yahushua as the Christ. There's nothing really wrong with that. However, if we want to be refined, if we want what is the best way to describe Yahushua, would it be the word Christ? I don't think so. Why not? Because when we go back to the meaning of Christos, it means anointed. But in Greek, when you have a term in Greek, it is connected always with culture. It is connected always with their history. You cannot remove the meaning of names from the culture. This is why when Yahusha is described as the Christ to a person who grew up Greek during the first century, they're going to be confused because the word anointed one, Christos, the Greek term Christos translates to oil or oiled or covered in oil. In Greek culture, anointing was linked to bathing and sports rather than to kingship or royalty, a category of sculptures known as apoxi omenos on the left. These are representing uh, athletes. And when they play in their athletic games, they oil their bodies. And so when people say Christos, they think of what? The oiled bodies of the athletes. And so when they're saying the Savior is Christos, they're thinking about the athletic games. And so that's not a proper depiction of our Savior, is it? And so there's a meaning to what anointed one means, depending on the culture, depending on the language. And so in Greek, when you say the Christ, they're thinking in their minds, you know, Yahusha, the oiled one, one who's covered in oil. It doesn't have meaning beyond that. This is why I believe it's better to use Hamashiach, the Mashiach, right? Instead of the Christ. And so the person asking the question makes a good point in giving us these passages because it tells us the purpose of anointing. In the Greek culture, anointing represented 
bathing in oil so that the athletes can be prepared for the competition, right? That's the meaning of anointing with oil. You're anointed with oil for the athletic competition. It's different, vastly different when it comes to the Hebrew mindset. When it comes to Hebrew, what does it mean to be anointed? Let's read the passages that he cites for Samuel 2.10, Psalm 132.17, Daniel 9.25. In 1 Samuel 2.10, this is what it says. And after reading all of this, I'm going to ask you a question, okay? So I'm going to read first the passages. The adversaries of Yahuwah shall be broken in pieces. From heaven, he will thunder against them. Yahuwah will judge uh, the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's for Samuel. Psalm 132. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamb for my anointed. And Daniel 9 verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth, of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, anointed one, the prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Uh, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So we have scriptures here all mentioning anointed one. What do they have in common? Who are the anointed ones? What is the purpose of anointing oil? Is it to prepare a person for the Olympic Games? Is it to prepare a person for athletics? No, it is to prepare the king, the leader of the people of Yisharah. Do you see the difference between the Hebrew concept of anointing and the Greek concept of anointing? Vastly different. This is why if we refer to Yahusha as the Christ, what we're communicating what we're, the meaning would be Christ, the one who's being prepared for athletics. But when we use Hamashiach, Mashiach, he is the anointed king. Because back in Hebrew times, or the, because the, the Hebrew people, whenever they would assign a king, he would be anointed with oil. For example, when Saul became king, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not Yahuwah anointed you leader over his inheritance? And so before Saul became king, he was anointed to become king. You see, the anointing process was for the purpose of consecration. What does it mean to consecrate somebody or something? It means to set it apart. To set it apart to do a function, a task. During the days of the Old Testament, when a person is set apart for a task and this person is anointed with oil, often it is because he's going to be the next leader or the next king of Yisharal. But that's not the only thing. In fact, the Bible even tells us how this oil is to be made. This is interesting. In the book of Exodus 30, 23 to 25, also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, uh, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, anointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. And so the oil 
that represents anointing in the Old Testament by the Hebrew people, people of Yeshua. It represents nothing secular, but something that represents holiness, right? And so Yahuwah gave the ingredients, myrrh, cinnamon, cane, cassia, olive oil, put them together in certain amounts, and you have a holy anointing oil. Now, what was the oil used for? 30, 26 to 30. With it, you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the liver and its base. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. And you shall anoint, take note, Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister to me as priests. And so the oil is special. Its purpose is to consecrate, to set apart the furniture that needs to be used for worship, like the tabernacle. And the ark of the testimony is special. So they are to be anointed with oil. Not just the things used for worship, but especially the people used for worship. Namely who? Aaron and his sons, who were to serve as priests. And so the purpose of the oil was not to prepare for athletic games. Its purpose was to prepare for worship. And so the oil was used to anoint kings and to anoint what? Priests, right? Anointing oil in the Hebrew culture, in the Hebrew scriptures. The purpose of anointing oil was to consecrate kings and priests. This is why Hamashiach is much, much, much better than to use Christ in describing Yahusha. This is why I often use Hamashiach. Sometimes we slip and we still mention the Christ, right? That's okay. But it's much better to use Mashiach, Hamashiach, because it connotes it represents the meaning and purpose of anointing, which is to be consecrated for being king and being priests. And so Yahushua, when he read the prophecy about himself, what did he say? In Luke 4, 4 verse 18, the spirit of Yahuwah is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So Yahusha has been anointed. Who anointed our King Yahusha? The Father, Yahuwah himself. Now, why would Yahusha be anointed? Why is he called the anointed one or the Mashiach? That's because he is to be king and he is to be what? Priest. He is a king and a priest. That's why he's called the anointed one. Should not be called the Christ. Because the Christ means the one who set set apart for athletics. No, he set apart to be king of kings and to be the high priest of, Mel of the Melchizedek order. That's our king, Yahusha. But you know something else? It's not just Yahusha who was anointed. Who do you think was also anointed? Who do you think was also set apart? Allow me to read the book of 1 John 2 verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. Bible says we also have an anointing. How? 
were we anointed? What was our anointing? 2 Corinthians 1, 21, 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Mashiach, right? He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And so here, Apostle Paul reminds us of our standing in Mashiach. What is our standing? Bible says we received anointing. How? We were given the spirit in our hearts. And so the spirit represents the anointing that consecrates us, that sets us apart. This is why when we receive the spirit, we have been marked. We have been set apart. And that mark is the spirit of ownership. We belong to Yahuwah now. And so what awaits are the blessings intended for those consecrated or set apart who receive that mark, the spirit of Yahuwah in our hearts, guaranteeing what is to come. What is the blessing? If we have received the anointing, if you believe you have received the anointing of the spirit, do you know what that means? What are we able to do if we truly believe we have received the anointing that because of our baptism in Christ, in Yahushua HaMashiach, we now, we now have the power of the spirit of Elohim. Allow me to read. This is a beautiful passage in the book of 1 John 2, verse 27. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as, had, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So in, we, when we have fellowship with our king, Yahushua, we have the anointing, which is the seal of the spirit. When we have the spirit, what are we authorized to do? To learn and understand scripture. We don't need a quote-unquote messenger to tell us what we can learn and what we can understand from Scripture. No, the Spirit, Yahusha, through the Spirit, through the anointing, we can receive that instruction. This is why the Apostle John says, you don't need anyone to teach you. Does it mean we should not have teachers like elders who proclaim the gospel? We should, but they're not necessary. Because if we are willing to work hard enough, if we are depending upon Yahuwah and we are praying to Yahuwah Abba to show us the truth of scripture, if we are anointed by his spirit, then we will understand that we love Yahuwah Abba because we have received the anointing. And this is why as members of the assembly of Yahushua, we only have one teacher. Our teacher is not the minister. Our real teacher is who? Yahushua. Through his spirit, we will be guided into knowing the truth of the Holy Bible. And because we have received anointing, and we know the purpose of anointing, to consecrate those who will be kings, those who will be priests, because we have received the anointing of the Spirit. What is in store for those who belong to Yahushua? Allow me to read the final passage of our studies today. Revelation 1, 5 to 6. And from Yahushua Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. Isn't that beautiful? We belong to Yahushua. Because of this, we have been given the spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance. What is our inheritance? We're going to be kings. We're going to be priests. That's the purpose of anointing. We have been consecrated and set apart so that we can be kings and priests of Elohim. So the shed blood of our King Yahushua. He did this out of his love for us. The manifestation of his love is that he washed us and he cleansed us with his own blood so that we can become kings and priests, so that we can become anointed ones, just like Mashiach, our loving Yahushua. And so if we really want to make it more precise, it would be better to refer to Yahushua as Mashiach instead of Christ. Okay, that is our lesson for today. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father, merciful and gracious Abba, thank you so much for the blessings that we have received. The guidance of your teachings and your scriptures, they enlighten us. We have so much to look forward to because we have received your anointing, the giving of your Holy Spirit, that we may become priests and kings, to be together with your only begotten son, Yahushua, to receive our inheritance. Help us to endure until the end and help us to stand strong over the adversary. Our King Yahushua, you are our Mashiach. Please have mercy upon us all. Help us to be devoted to you. Help us to surrender to you because you have given up your life that by your blood, by your love, you have washed our sins and we have become yours. We have become Abbas. We will worship you forever. Only please guide each and every one of us. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. You have blessed your people throughout the world. But we ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen.